Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Everyone, welcome or welcome back to the 86th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. We're starting to get warm weather here back to Ohio. Yeah, it's uh, mid, mid-40s right now, and it feels hot. It's a heat wave, baby. <laughs> Start wearing shorts. It does. It does. So. Get the pitching wedge. Go to the driving range. Get some practice in. Now, that's what I'm excited for. <laughs> that's what I'm excited for. Golf season's right around the corner. Um, so we'll kick it off here uh, by taking the first few minutes to recap the performance uh, for the year so far. Um, because pretty much the month of February is pretty aligned with the performance year-to-date so far, so far. So we won't go over that. Um, and this data is from StockCharts.com as of the market close on February 22nd. S&P 500 index is up 3.21% for the year. The Dow up 2.99% for the year. The NASDAQ composite uh, up 5% for the year, even with the weakness over the past week for tech stocks. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 14.11% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, X United States, up 5.62% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently sitting at 0.03%. The two-year Treasury yield currently sitting at 0.11%, and the 10-year Treasury yielding 1.37%. So a couple of things from last week, Matt. Stocks were down in general. Um, According to StockCharts.com, the NASDAQ uh, was down 1.57%. S&P was down 0.71%. Um, but I like to remind listeners that we're heading into a seasonally weak period for the stock market in the end of February. So typically, um, you know, from around February 18th or 19th through the end of the month is pretty bearish for stock. So this is well within the norms, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing was we got retail sales uh, last week and sales at the U S retailers gained in January and posted the first increase in four months, adding to evidence of a rebound in the economy after fresh government financial aid and a waning number of coronavirus cases. Um, retail sales leapt 5.3% last month. Um, and it was the largest increase in eight months. So the, uh, the increase in spending could be due um, in part by the $600 federal stimulus checks uh, for millions of Americans that were, um, and, more, and more generous unemployment benefits too. So um, those things probably helped prop up retail sales. It was phenomenal numbers, was it not? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it's positive. I think it's just more of this, you know, pent up demand that we're going to start to see spill over into travel and leisure eventually would, over the I next couple of months. I would agree with that months. statement. Um, so moving on to tweets and articles and research from the week that caught our eyes. Uh, the first thing I had was from a blog on Substack called The Rotation Report. And this blog post uh, specifically is the Kathy Wood Report. And I just wanted to read a snippet from this. And this was uh, this section of this blog post was titled, What They Don't Tell You About the Tech Bubble. 
And they say, people like to say this is like the 1999-2000 tech bubble all over again. Well, at least they're kind of right. At the end of the tech bubble, the fear of the Y2K computer glitches led to the Fed's greatest increase of liquidity ever. Well, at the time. After 2000 came and went, the Fed withdrew the liquidity and then we had the 2000 peak. The Y2K special lending facility ran from October 7th, 99 to April 7th of 2000. In that period, the NASDAQ composite rallied 95% in that period before declining 78% over the next two and a half years. Liquidity is awesome on the upside, but when you remove it, not so much. Yeah, I think another fact, well, you, anything you want to say before I make it? I was just going to say that, you know, I want to point out how important, you know, monetary policy is to the markets and what the Fed is doing with liquidity in the markets. It's very important. Absolutely. So when the rug gets pulled out from under people that are used to all this cheap money and all this liquidity, there are consequences with that. But obviously, we're not in that type of environment right now. No, I mean... If you were listening to some of the financial networks, they tried to make it appear that way yesterday. I mean, what is happening is interest rates have gone up on especially the 10-year U.S. Treasury, and everyone's trying to extrapolate that this is the beginning of X, Y, Z. And I was literally in the car on my way to pick up Rowan from basketball practice, and I was laughing out loud. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know we're in a strong market. When the market corrects one and a half percent and people think, oh, my, they're treating it like a seven percent one day sell off. Right. Right. It's, it's insane to me. Yeah. Yeah. And that says is. to me underlying we're in a pretty, pretty good market. Right. Right. Now. Exactly. And, you know, the Fed has not even indicated that they're going to raise interest rates at a given point in time. No. So. I mean, you got Powell talking tomorrow and I'm sure he's going to be singing lullabies to the market, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and that's just my opinion. Yeah. So. Yeah. So just wanted to point that out of, you know, this isn't the first time we're going to go through a period where, you know, monetary policy was very easy and then it didn't get or it got a lot harder. Right. Sure. In, in the early 2000s. So this is something we've been through before. Yeah. Um, the next one that I had was a tweet from Macro Charts on February 17th. And he said this, why the big picture is critical, especially now, nearly all global stock markets are back in uptrends, in parentheses, rising 200-day moving averages. This condition defined a bull market, excuse me, bull markets in history. It's one of the strongest readings ever usually seen at the start of major advances. Follow the trend. And he tweeted um, a chart that shows, you know, how many you know, world stock markets are above their 200-day moving average, and it's right around the highest amount ever. And that usually coincides with new uptrends, according to this chart that he tweeted. So I think that's another another uh, tool in the toolbox for the bulls, so to speak. Absolutely. I mean, taking this chart, going back to your, your, your previous comment in regards to monetary policy, um, I know you would agree with this statement. We don't anticipate the Federal Reserve changing interest rates anytime soon, which I'll define as at least the next 12 months. Mm -hmm. And we got a tailwind here. And I think it needs to be, it's not really discussed as much as it should be. Yeah. So yeah, I appreciate I you, you you pointing that out. Yep. Uh, next was a tweet from Ian McMillan on February 17th. And Ian said, fighting generational trends simply because they don't make sense to you is a great way to add 10 years to your retirement date age, or excuse me, your retirement date target. Can't speak today. <laughs> um, you know, so 
in my opinion, if you're one of those people who think that stocks can't go higher, I think it's a newsflash for you that they can and they are right now. Um, so don't get caught up in necessarily what you think should be happening or you're you're going to get killed in the markets, I think. I think the, the, the message is plan, have, a, have an appropriate plan for yourself. Don't follow the day-to-day or week-to-week emotions because that is, in my opinion, the biggest factor that derails people's financial progress. When you yeah, sell, I- when do you get back in? Well, yeah. Well, I think that's the that's the problem is that people have this rational way of how the market is supposed to work. And if they don't agree that the market's getting it right, then they make an investing decision just because they don't think, you know, things are right. And and I think you can really get hurt by by doing that. Well, I mean, humans have horrible memories. And so what happens is the thought process of how difficult February and March were last year People forget that so fast. Mm-hmm. I mean, last February and March, it was this market's never going to go back up. And now it's the opposite, it feels like. <laughs> right. You know, and, and, and ultimately, you know, we're, we're going to have sell-offs. But generally speaking, I think we're, we're, we're in a good market right now. Yeah, I do too. Um, you know, I'm not seeing any evidence, you know, in my research that alerts, you know, risk on the heavy risk on the table, but we weren't alerted really of it last February. That's true. It's so, true. Um, I guess my analogy is if, if someone thinks this market's bad, oh, they haven't seen, seen anything yet. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so yes, I like a lot of the stuff that Ian puts out. So that was a good one. Uh, the last one that I had before I turn it over to you was a tweet from uh, Ryan Dietrich on February 19th. Okay. And he said, here are all of the S&P 500 corrections since 1980. The returns a year or two later are truly spectacular. It isn't easy in the moment, but for longer term investors, when stocks go on sale is when you should go shopping. And again, this outlines all of the corrections back to 1980. And for definition of a correction for listeners, that's anywhere between a... um, Anywhere, anything more than a 10% pullback from all-time highs. Okay. Okay. Um, And the average return for the S&P 500 after these corrections, uh, one year later was 23%, and two years later was 37%. So, again, we talked about this before, but when it feels very uncomfortable to, to make a buy, like to buy a stock or to buy an index fund, typically, you know, that's around maybe the right time when you should be doing it and you know when it feels very easy to 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 press the buy button usually the opposite so um he tweeted uh this chart and i think i retweeted it or reposted it on my twitter so if people want to go check this out um they can go and look on on twitter there you know reminds me of an old wall street saying which is in market corrections stocks or their shares return to their rightful owners. Right. They go from uh, the weak hands to the strong hands. That's right. right. That's right. And, and then a quote I had uh, in, a, in a podcast two weeks ago, I think is timely to remind listeners. And it is, and I mentioned, the higher the volatility in the market, the more short-term focus traders get, which creates opportunities for long-term investors. Hence, 
If you're a long-term investor, don't fear volatility. Embrace it for the advantage that it is. Yeah, remind you wanna, about yeah, that. you want to see this stuff. You want to see these these pullbacks. It's all opportunity. And remember, listeners, if if the market just went up a little bit every day, you wouldn't see the returns that you're seeing right. over the long term. Right. All right, I'll turn it over to you. All righty. I got a couple for the listeners. First is a research note from Charlie. Can you pronounce his last name for me? I think it's Bilello. Okay. Um, but, Don't quote me on that. Uh, well, I wouldn't even get close to that. <laughs> no, no disrespect to Charlie, and I apologize. Uh, of Compound Advisors, we reference his research often. Uh, this is a note, Mark, from February 20th at 11 a.m. It's a chart of copper, and it's a chart that goes back um, quite some time. And the copper closed at its highest level in over nine years, Mark, more than doubling in price from its low last March. And I know that we this can be seen in building and renovation cost. You know, you're, you're seeing some inflation on, on these commodities and just want to get your opinion on that. Yeah, well, I think it's a good sign for the, the broader economy that these prices are going up, which means there's more demand for this, which translates into uh, more action happening in all these global economies that, you know, need copper for things, right? Yeah. And I wanted to highlight this rather than some other things, because if I mention gold or silver, I think that that could be misunderstood as someone's buying that for an investment. Mm -hmm. And I view copper as a, a metal per se that is used not just bought to hold. Yeah. Is that a no. good way of saying it? Mark? Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, typically when, when copper is doing well, stocks do well and economies start to do well. So I think this is just one of those relationships that people are starting to take notice of that, hey, maybe, you know, this Underlying is really the sign is, of a new. Is, is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Got a couple more. Next one is an update on old uh, Mr. Warren Buffett. And this is a tweet from Barbarian Capital. He's a trader I follow on Twitter. He posted this on February 20th. And the title of it was Buffett underperforming the S&P 500 index across a one year, five year and 10 year time frame. And I'll just go ahead and read my notes here. I said Buffett's performance over the recent decade has trailed a reminder, in my opinion, not to buy something just because someone like Buffett buys it. He has a different um, his different investment goals, risk, time horizon, portfolio makeup, etc., it also doesn't mean that what he buys will automatically do well. For example, one of his top holdings is Wells Fargo Bank. I pulled up Wells Fargo and it's still down over 4% over the past five years. And I got that data from stockcharts.com as of February 21st. Yeah, well, yeah. Another example is, you know, he sold airlines pretty much at the low, it sounded like. And now airlines are you know, ripping again. Um, well put. So that's uh, just another example. Just a it's reminder. Just, just a reminder. Investors aren't perfect. That's right. Money managers aren't perfect. Nope. Retail traders aren't perfect. Nope. If you're Warren Buffett or Jimmy Buffett, <laughs> you know, you still, uh, you can still have your ups and downs in the market. Absolutely, my friend. I got one more. This is going to be a good one. So I found a um, interesting viewpoint on quote unquote bubble talk in the markets. Now, I found this blog post from a weekly research note I subscribed to from Brian Lund of the Lund Report, and I referenced him several times in the podcast, and I subscribed to his research. He had a link on there for a website called avc.com, and it's a venture capital firm run by Fred Wilson since 1986. Brian Lund's quote is, Fred Wilson has seen a lot of booms and busts. 
Here, he outlines how the current asset bubble will end, end quote, and I'm going to add in his opinion. Okay? okay, so I find it interesting and I want to get your opinion, Mark, after I read this. Okay, here we go. We're in the middle of one of the great asset bubbles of modern times. It has been brought on by easy monetary policies of central banks around the world aimed at weathering the global COVID-19 pandemic. Interest rates are near zero or negative in most developed economies and asset prices have gone way up as a result. Can I just say something? Yes. I mean, whether people think we're in a bubble or we're not in a bubble right now, who really cares? You, know you what, can make the argument that we've been in a bubble since the market's inception. <laughs> well, the thing I love is we usually when you're talking about we're in a bubble means we're not in a bubble. Right. And then when we're not <laughs> talking about it, then we are. Right? So it's right. like the opposite thing. But right. yeah, it's just like it, to me, it's like, who cares? Why do you care? I just thought this was interesting. Let me finish. Let because, me finish. because bubbles can go on, quote unquote, bubbles can go on for a very long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, the other Wall Street adage is. The, the markets can stay more irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Right, right, exactly. All right. Sorry. So when in, no, this is great. So when interest rates are zero to negative, the value of future cash flows is huge. And that is how you get P.E., price to earnings multiples, and EBITDA ratios of over 100 and price revenue multiples approaching 100. The big question is, how does it end? I believe it ends when COVID-19 pandemic is over and the global economy recovers. Those two things won't necessarily happen at the same time. There is a wide range of recovery scenarios and nobody really knows how long it will take the global economy to recover from the pandemic. And if listeners could hear, um, Louie is sitting by Jenna. I'll post a picture on my social media. And as I just said, that gave out one of the loudest sighs I've heard in quite a long time. <laughs> I guess he is underwhelmed with my. Yeah, I, I guess so. Um, OK. But at some point, economies will recover. Central banks will tighten the monetary, I'm sorry, central banks will tighten the money supply and interest rates will rise. We may see price inflation of consumer goods and labor too, although that is less clear. Almost finished. When economies recover and interest rates rise, the air will come out of the asset price bubble that has built up and the go-go markets will hit the brakes. When will that happen? Your guess is as good as mine. It could be later this year. It could be in a few years, could take longer. A lot of damage has been done to the global economy, and it is unclear how quickly it can recover. Yeah. So maybe I jumped on his throat a little early there after just hearing the first. That's okay. The first bullet point. I mean, I think I think the, the, the message also, again, I want to reiterate that, you know, in my opinion, you're not in a bubble when everyone's talking about you're in a bubble in regards to the market, because mm -hmm. usually you know, you hit what I call the euphoria phase. And we've seen snippets of it, but I'm not talking true euphoria. I don't think we've seen it yet. Yeah. And we saw we saw snippets of that in the late nineties. I saw snippets of that in 06 and 07. We're just we're not we're not there yet. Yeah. People aren't changing their license plates to ticker symbols again. Yeah. Yeah. I've I have seen that with with some things that we won't just get into, but <laughs> Because we can go down a, a big rabbit hole there. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, I guess just like the pieces like this always get to me because, again, people love a good story for why the market's going up or why the market's going down. But to me, no one can actually pinpoint 
a piece of news that has caused the market to go up or to go down. To me, the only thing that causes the market to go up and down is supply and demand. Bingo. Of buyers and sellers. Bingo. That's why I was laughing in the car yesterday, listening to some of these financial news stations. And they're talking about how, oh, the 10-year the, the went up from 1.29 to almost 1.4. And it's like, that's crazy cheap money mm -hmm. still. I don't understand. You know? It's still, yeah, it's not going to get investors excited or hop out of bed and go jump in 10-year treasury bonds. No. So, um, okay. Well, moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be discussing um, the Wall Street Journal's tax guide in 2021. And here they talk about some important personal finance topics for the year. And with a year with so much uncertainty now behind us, some of us are going to have to take some extra steps to make sure, you know, 2020 taxes are completed correctly and you have your house in order in that, in that standpoint, because there were some changes that took place in 2020 that um, wasn't necessarily normal for any given, given tax year. So I just wanted to start with some of the basics with tax rates and how that stuff works and, you know, what are the changes coming in 2021, Matt, for this week? All right. Um, so the first thing that I wanted to discuss was uh, income tax rates. So um, I'm just going to go over um, the adjusted tax rates and numbers for given income in 2021, okay? Okay. So um, if you are married filing joint, you can make up to $19,900 and be in the 10% tax bracket. Okay. To be in the 12% tax bracket, income between $19,901 and $81,050. Okay. The 22% tax bracket, and again, this is all for married filing joint, $81,051 to $172,750. The 24% tax bracket, a uh, little under $173,000 to $330,000. 32% tax bracket, $330,000 to $419,000. 35% tax bracket, Four hundred and nineteen thousand and to six hundred and twenty-eight thousand, and then if you make more than six hundred and twenty-eight thousand three hundred and one dollars, you'll be in the top tax bracket of thirty-seven percent. So, not much changes. There was a couple changes just adjusted for inflation slightly, but at the end of the day, it only made a couple hundred bucks difference from what we saw in twenty twenty. So, got it for the brackets, right? So, no major major changes on that front. Um, let's talk about capital gains taxes a little bit, Matt. Um, so I'm just going to read a little bit uh, here from this article uh, from the Wall Street Journal. They say favorable tax rates for long-term capital gains and many dividends, including a popular zero rate on investment income for some lower and middle income households, remain unchanged. So, That's big. Yeah, nothing changed with you know how much income you make and the capital gains. However, a 3.8% surtax applies to net investment income for most single filers whose adjusted gross income exceeds 200000 and most couples filing jointly with adjusted gross income above 250000 This surtax applies only to the amount of the net investment income above those thresholds. For example, if a single filer has 150000 of ordinary income, 
plus 50,000 of a taxable long-term gain, plus 25,000 of qualified dividends, then 25,000 would be subject to the 3.8% surtax. Okay. So I don't know if a lot of people are aware of this, are aware of this but it's called um, the also called the Medicare tax that, you know, gains above a certain dollar amount in addition to the capital gains tax, the you tack on, yeah, you tack on, you know, 3.8%. So really for capital gains, it's not just 0% capital gains, 15% and 20%. It's 0%, 15%, 18.8% and 23.8% and 20% um, for the capital gains taxes, depending on your income. So again, if your adjusted gross income is greater than 200,000, your capital gains will be subject to the 3.8% surtax. Okay. If that makes sense. It does. As a result, top bracket taxpayers typically owe 23.8% instead of 20% on their long-term gains and dividends. Some investors in the 15% bracket for this income owe the 3.8% surtax on part or all of them because their adjusted gross income is above the 250 slash $200,000 threshold, depending if you're single or married filing joint. You know, I'm going to ask you an open-ended question, and I have, um, you know, no, um, I'll just ask the question. In this case, do you think taxation rates are going to go up next year in regards to capital gains? And this is not a loaded question. I'm not trying to set you up. I just Um, wanted to see what you have to say to this. I don't know. I think it could for, I think here's the, the most, um, the the thing that has the most chance of getting passed, right? Yeah. I think that they could possibly raise the capital gains tax on people making above a certain income threshold, right? So Biden said that they're not going to raise taxes on anyone that makes over 400 or excuse me, under $400,000. Mm-hmm. I think this could be the same for capital gains that oh, it's, I could see that. it's people only only affects people in the upper that brackets. make more than four hundred thousand dollars could have their capital gains taxes just revert to ordinary income taxes. Okay, yeah, just want to know your opinion. Yeah, I don't know. I it's hard to guess on all this legislative stuff because there's so much more that goes into it behind the scenes that yeah. me and you see every single day. Yeah, I think it's a potential, but jeez, uh, I can't talk today, man. You heard me. <laughs> you heard me. It's it's definitely a potential, and I think it's more likely um, in two years if the Democrats pick up more more seats in the Senate that they have a wider majority. Yeah, that could be something down the road in that a couple of years that we can see. Yeah. yeah, just wanted to know what your where your head stood because my opinion is I would agree with you. I think that there is some risk there. Yeah, I think the higher brackets, especially. Yeah, agreed. And what I'm getting at is, you know, there might be people later in the year, Mark, that if they're looking to, you know, realize some long-term gains, you might see people harvest that stuff later this year, trying to lock in the lower rates. Right. Exactly. What I'm trying to get yeah, to. exactly. And it'll be interesting because, you know, like you said, you can't, I don't know, you can't make decisions based on something that could potentially happen. That's right. right. That's so if right. you sell all your, your long-term capital gains now, because you think you're, you know, in two years, it's going to get taxed at ordinary income, then it doesn't happen. Then it was like, well, that was a mistake. Right? Yeah. I'm thinking more along the lines of if someone has like uh, a need for um, liquidity and they're going to need it, say, in Q1 or Q2 mm-hmm. of next year yeah. and they're in a higher bracket, it might make sense to make those trades near the end of the year from a right. taxation standpoint. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. 
Um, they provide another example here for listeners. So they say, say that David is a single filer with 210,000 of adjusted gross income and 50,000 that is a windfall from a long-term gain on an investment and some qualified dividends. In that case, David's investment income would likely be taxed at a 15% rate, but he would owe an extra 3.8% on $10,000 of that because that is the amount of investment income above the 200,000 uh, of adjusted gross income. So his tax rate on the 10,000 would be 18.8%. So again, it's just the the amount above those that threshold of 200,000 for single filers and, and above that threshold for 250 for, for, for couples. Got it. Um so I don't know if people are aware but you know you could qualify to be in the 0% tax rate for capital gains. And a lot of people aren't aware of this, right? Um, so some people owe no taxes on their capital gains and dividends after a sale. Here's a simplified example. Say that Janet is a single taxpayer with $30,000 of taxable ordinary income for 2020 after deductions and exemptions. Her taxable income is subject to regular rates up to 12%. But Janet also has a $20,000 long-term capital gain, and it stacks on top of her $30,000 of taxable income for a total taxable income of $50,000. For 2020, the 15% bracket for capital gains begins at $40,000 of taxable income for single filers. As a result, Janet would owe zero tax on $10,000 of her gain and 15% on the remaining $10,000. Love that. So I know it's hard for listeners to wrap their heads around this when we're talking about it on a podcast. Yeah. But you know, if you look up this Wall Street Journal tax guide, they have charts that make it a lot easier to follow along with this. Um, but you know, if you're married and filing joint, um, you know, you can have up to eighty thousand eight hundred of joint income, taxable income, and be in the zero percent capital gains tax rate. That's huge. Yeah. Which That's is huge. Big. Yeah. But again, if you do realize capital gains, that stacks on top of your ordinary income, which could bump up your capital gains rate, obviously, on, on some of that if you do decide to realize a, a long term cap gain. Yep. So, again, um, just wanted to point out some of the, the things that they talked about, um, just some of the simple stuff in the beginning here. And again, I You're know you're going to revisit this in the coming weeks as well. Yeah, there's a couple other things. And it talks about how different coronavirus uh, policy changes affects, you know, how people do their taxes and that type of thing. And again, we're not tax advisors and can't give tax advice, but just going over some of the basic information, I think, would be helpful for people. That's great. And why don't you remind listeners how they can access a link to this Wall Street Journal. Do you have it on your social media? Uh, I don't actually. Um, I'll see if I can find it and retweet it or like it and send it out to listeners. And, but I'll, and I'll, I'll share that on mine as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was this was just something that I had in my archives for about a month now. So I just went back to the Wall Street Journal and to, to look at that. But yeah, That's great. I'll I think to, you'll have some listeners that'll want to. Yeah, I'll go back and try to, to read that. Try to put that out there for people. Um. Okay. Anything else you wanted to dive into before we call it uh, call it a week? No, no. I just think that uh, right now I'm getting the feeling over the past week, sentiment-wise in the market, people are getting you know um, all worked up, and um, it's not really affecting me at all. I think this is no big deal. 
yeah, I don't think it, it it's a big deal either. Um, again, this type of action is healthy. Yeah, that's but right. Baby. It just feels different to people because over the past couple of months, for recency any. bias, you know, it's just been up and up and up. But yeah. you know, we don't want a market that goes up and up and up. This is healthy. Doesn't this is back. healthy, listeners. Yeah, this so. is healthy. Um, okay, well, we'll leave it there. Uh, next week, we have a special guest on the podcast, which I will leave you to guess who that will be. But love that. Uh, one of my favorite people I follow in regards to uh, the markets. So I think um, it'll be very fruitful for everybody to listen to to that guest. So it we'll, will be a treat. I know who it is. So we'll be back uh, with episode 87 next week. But thanks for tuning in to episode 86. Uh, hope you all have a r- wonderful rest of the week and hope that uh Temperatures are warming up in your neck of the woods, too. Share the podcast. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.